Grace and peace to you, church. Thank you, Brandon and Robin, for allowing me to preach the gospel again this morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the little letter of Jude, next to last book in the Bible, Jude will be in Jude verse 4 this morning. Jude verse 4. This is a, a very powerful, I hope you've seen that in the first three verses, this is a very powerful yet overlooked epistle, um, but it's needful for the church when we're contending for the faith, and in Jude, we're afforded something of a picture of the identity of false teachers. Now, though this was not his main purpose, there is a large section in Jude which deals with that. Uh, these men are secret enemies to the church, and that's the title of the sermon this morning, the secret enemies of the church. These were, we could say in a sense, apostates within the church. So our text, verse 4, kind of forms the conclusion to the introduction of Jude's epistle and really the reason for why he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So again, the, the title of the sermon, the secret enemies of the church, We'll handle our text in four points. For those of you who have an outline, that's not new news to you. First, we'll see these these false teachers, these apostates, their pernicious pronouns. It's alliteration. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. We'll see their pernicious pronouns. Secondly, their pervasive presence. Third, their predestined plight. We're going to camp there for a minute. And then fourth, their perverted personality. So we'll read verses 1 through 4 together, and then we'll pray. Jude 1. Jude, a servant or slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, And love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your word, the preacher is in much need, and so are the hearers. We confess ourselves empty before you, Lord. We confess ourselves devoid of understanding unless you give us light by your Holy Spirit. We need light to understand these things. Lord, there are many things here, even in this little passage, that you have given for us that are hard to understand. So I pray now, Lord, that you would, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, meet us by the power of your word. 
Leave us, Lord, with a sense of awe at you, a sense of your power and your might, your sovereignty and your goodness to us. Help us, Lord, not to leave here the same. We long for change. We want to be more like Christ. So now help us by this text this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, to our first point, they're pernicious pronouns. Jude calls these men certain men. And it's a common phrase in the Bible, uh, elsewhere in the New Testament. It lets the reader kind of know these were known people. Uh, Paul uses this same phraseology when speaking to the Corinthian church about his apostolic office. Those, this is how one should regard us. Same Greek word there. It was the same phraseology used when urging Timothy to warn certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Jude uses this phraseology in really a contemptuous way. He's looking at these men and he's disdaining what these men stand for. These are certain men within the church. Now, if you were here last time, maybe you thought naming names was taboo. Uh, I will do that again this morning. I think it's needful in the right spirit. Um, Maybe you thought it was harsh. But Jude's attitude here toward these, these men proliferating false doctrine was such that he couldn't even say their name. These were just certain men. People knew them for sure. They bought their books, they attended their conferences, they sat under their preaching. But for Jude, they were certain men. Spurgeon says this, The raw material for a devil is an angel. The raw material for the son of perdition was an apostle. And the raw material for the most horrible of apostates is one who is almost a saint. And Jude speaks here of these men in the plural. These were not just one man in the congregation, among the church, but many men. Spurgeon again says this, One Judas is an awful weight for this poor globe to bear, but a tribe of them must be a peril indeed. And this is what the church was facing at the present time in Jude's day. They were certain men and not just one of them. They were known men, marked men. And as we will discover later in our text, they were apostates. They were apostates. This kind of brings me to just a really simple, uh, right up front observation. Seducers are dealt with differently than the seduced. Let me say that again. Seducers are dealt with differently than the seduced. Jude presents for us here, even just in this little phrase, a very balanced picture of a contender of the faith. Earlier in his letter, he wished the church would have mercy, peace, and love, things without which we cannot rightly contend. Later in his letter... He will tell us that we are to have mercy on those who doubt. 
But in this place, there's this contemptuous disdain for these people. And as we'll see in a moment, a condemnation of them. So we begin to to discover a little bit of a proper balance between our attitude toward those who lead astray and our attitude toward those who are led astray. We do not deal with them in the same way. We are to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, Hebrews 5.2. We are not to be quarrelsome but kind to the seduced, teaching them patiently, enduring their evil, correcting them with gentleness, 2 Timothy 2.24. But for the seducer, for the seducer, we are of a much different sort, beloved. As for the person who stirs up division, that is the word heresy, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Titus 3, 10 and 11. Second John, it, probably more forgotten than Jude's epistle, Second John, John says this, if anyone comes to you, and does not bring this teaching, he's talking about someone in an official teaching role. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. I think we can see here a balanced approach to the seducer and the one who is seduced, and they are dealt with in different ways. So we can see there uh, these men and their pernicious pronouns. Secondly, notice their pervasive presence. Jude says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Now, some commentators have remarked here that the the apostates crept in, um, and where they crept in is not really uh, mentioned. You can see there it doesn't say crept into the church or crept into pulpits or things like that. I think it's an all-encompassing thing that Jude is trying to say here. These men were ultimately, and as I think, I think as we'll see later, these men were ultimately teachers and preachers within the church. They occupied the office of elder, of preacher. More than likely, these men were those who occupied the office without being ordained. I thought it was very uh, helpful and gracious of the Lord this morning in the Bible study because the Bible study was really just highlighting something I'm saying here. So I see the Holy Spirit working in, these, in this way to, to highlight what I'm saying here. Think about this. As the Father sent the Son into the world, so the Son sends his apostles into the world. That's John 17, 18. And so the apostles sent men who were to send men who are to send men, and so on, and so on, and so on. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Paul says to Timothy, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There is an, really an evangelical succession here, not a Roman Catholic succession, an evangelical succession here that when it's done rightly, it can spare the church from much harm. 
But these men, as I've heard one preacher say, were starched and pressed before they were ever washed. They were starched and they were pressed before they were ever washed. Having crept into the church, they crept into pulpits, and then they crept into the hearts and the minds of the people of God. But notice what he says. He says that they crept. They were creeps. They crept. It was drop by drop, not a wave, not a rush. These apostates proposed doubt, rationalization, alternatives, like their ancient prototype. Did God really say? That's doubt. You will not surely die? That's rationalization. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's the alternative. Doubt, rationalization, alternative. That's the alternative. And it comes in drop by drop, little by little, line by line. We are ordinarily, beloved, think about this. We are ordinarily defenseless against those things that move too fast. It's moving too fast for me. Football teams thrive on this. What's the two things they're looking for in a high school football player? Big and fast. They want somebody who can mow them down and do it and be the size of a house. But here... Here, we're warned against things that are so slow that we move on impatiently because they, propose, they pose no immediate threat. We move on because we're impatient because we don't see the immediate threat. Apostates at the last appear to be a lion, but they approach like a snail. At the last, they are a lion. They will devour, but they don't come in as a lion. He says here they creep. They come in like a snail. As to their pace, they creep. But he also says they crept in unnoticed. Jude later calls these men in verse 12, hidden reefs, at your love feasts. Their entrance into the church was not unnoticed because no one knew they were there. That's not the type of unnoticed he's speaking of here. They were known men. They went unnoticed because their behavior was immediately perceived, wasn't immediately perceived by the church. And Jude here seeks to unveil their true identity. And it's a gracious thing, beloved, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude helps us see in this text what the church could not see at the time. How are we to know? How are we to identify an apostate? These men were unnoticed by the church, but they were not unnoticed by God. So this brings me to a, I think, a basic observation here. And that is to be forewarned is to be forearmed. To be forewarned, there are men who are going to creep in, 
is to be forearmed. Jude gives no rose-colored view of the church, neither at the present time nor in the future. There was no golden age then. There is no golden age now. And there will be no golden age until the second coming of Christ. Jude is very real with us about the nature of the church. He warns us here to stay on guard, to fight the good fight, to contend for the faith, because here we will always be under attack, even until the end. Here, as the Apostle Paul says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3.13. We must wake up, beloved. There are men out there who are teachers of the church, who are apostates. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. This brings us to our third point and probably the most controversial point this morning. Notice their predestined plight. Their predestined plight. We've seen their pernicious pronouns, their pervasive presence, and we come now to a very mysterious, yet I think in the end for the believer, a very comforting fact. And it is the false teachers, the apostates, predestined plight. Look at what the text says. They were designated, as the ESV says, or marked, for those of you who have the NASB. They were designated or marked from long ago. This word designated or marked means to write beforehand. Prographe, to write beforehand. In ancient Greek, the word denotes the idea of something engraved or carved in stone. In Exodus 36, it's the same word used to describe the engraving of the pure gold plate for the high priest, where the name holy to the Lord was written, immovable, written beforehand. It was a symbol of the irreversible written identity of the person. This word also arises in legal contexts when making a decree, a contract, or putting something on public notice for everyone to see. Now, this language written beforehand should be familiar to us. I'll give you a few passages to consider. It's used to give us understanding that our lives were written before our first breath. You know where I'm going. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written. In your book were written. Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, 16. It's used regarding the sorrows of the godly. You have kept count of my tossings, the psalmist says. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Psalm 56, verse 8. 
It's used regarding those who fear the Lord. Malachi 3.16, and a book of remembrance was written before the Lord of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. And it's used concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 40, verse 8. Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. This language written beforehand is all over the pages of Scripture. In Jude, we see both a temporal and an eternal sense in which he is speaking. Temporally speaking, when Jude speaks of the plight of these certain men, he's identifying them with their ancient prototypes. The lion's share of the book spells this out from verses 5 to verse 19. Spells all that out. He's identifying them with their ancient prototypes in the Old Testament, from Jewish tradition, and even from the apostles' teaching. And we'll explore this later. These were things written beforehand that gave evidence to the apostate's condemnation. That's the temporal matter. Eternally speaking, however, the apostate's plight, here's the word, it's been predestined. It's been predestined. Whatever was worked out in time for the ancient prototypes was beforehand decreed by God. And it is so with these certain men. Theirs is a predestined, a designated, or a marked out plight. They have, as the King James puts it, been ordained for this condemnation. It is a predestined plight. Now, this is speaking of none other than God's predestining decree of reprobation. Reprobation. R-E-P-R-O-B-A-T-I-O-N. These are reprobate men. Their condemnation has been decreed from and for all eternity. Now, several places in Scripture speak to this fact. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says this concerning us, and I think we can deduce or imply from this text something. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this at least implies that some were destined to wrath. 1 Peter 2.8 makes a little more plain. We'll push in a little more here. They, Peter says, that is the reprobate, stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Proverbs 16.4 pushes a little harder. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Even the wicked for the day of trouble. And the ever infamous and oft avoided Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, 
has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It's plain. It may be hard to receive, but it's clear. From these texts, we can at least see that there is such a thing as a decree by God of reprobation. Reprobation concerns predestination. From all eternity, he has positively decreed the salvation of those he would elect or choose and love. Ephesians 1. They were predestined unto life. This is one aspect of God's predestining work. At the same time, God has, from all eternity, in the very same decree, passed over those who would be left in their fallen state and eternally lost. His single decree concerning your very salvation simultaneously passes over the objects of his wrath. You may ask, what is the basis of this sort of thing? What's the basis of such a decree? How could God do such a thing? Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We confess God has decreed from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever may come to pass. That's a mouthful. His decree is good, beloved. His decree is wise. It is holy. It is from himself. It's free from obligation or due to the creature. You did not force God to do what he did. He didn't look down and see your belief and then choose you. It's not conditional on the foreknowledge of your choice. It's unchangeable. No goat becomes a sheep, and no sheep becomes a goat. What is the basis of this decree? It is for the good pleasure and glory of God alone. This is the basis of the decree. Beloved, he is not arbitrary in this. He is not capricious. It is not some divine eeny, meeny, miny, mo. His own good pleasure is the basis of this decree. The pleasure of God. You're ever to get a tattoo. The pleasure of God is in all that he does. There is nothing more glorious than this. There is nothing more profound. The pleasure of God is in all that he does. With regard to the predestination of the elect, it is to the praise of his glorious grace. With regard to the predestination of the reprobate, it is to the praise of his justice. 
both have in view the glory and goodness of God alone. Both flow from the good pleasure of God alone. He can do nothing, beloved, that does not glorify him. He can do nothing that displeases himself. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, if you find yourself with this burning argument in your heart, if you find yourself on the side of this anticipated objector, you are on the wrong side of the argument. You're on the wrong side of the argument. In the wisdom of God, he wrote down for all time, think about the wisdom of this, he wrote down for all time the chief objection of every man's heart who will not bow to this doctrine in humility. Have you not said those very words? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? The scripture anticipates you because God is wise. Jude's words here are plain and unmistakable. These apostates, these troublers of the church, were designated, marked out from before the foundation of the world. We must settle there. We must rest our hearts in that truth. And he says they were designated for this condemnation. Now, we're going to discover what that means a little bit later in the following passages. But just know this. Suffice it to say that this shows God's wisdom in ordering all things. It shows his power in doing it, and it shows his faithfulness in doing and accomplishing his decree. 2 Peter 2.3 says their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. This brings me to some, a few observations and we need to camp here just for a minute and talk about these things. This doctrine is for the glory of God's justice. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, Paul says in Romans 9, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This doctrine should make us bow low before God in reverence and in awe. God will glorify himself and all of himself. He will not just get glory for his love. He will not just get glory for his patience with us. He will get glory for his justice as well. All of God is to be glorified. But maybe you're thinking, what in the world does this matter on a Tuesday at 4 p.m. when everything's falling apart? This doctrine is for our comfort and our good. 
It is. Everything done for us in Christ is for our good. All is in God's hands, beloved. All is in God's hands. God does nothing rashly. I really don't like the song. His love for you is not reckless. I'm sorry. That's a terrible theology. When he decrees that wicked men should assault us, it is to serve our ultimate good. It is particularly purposeful. It's calculated. It's weighed for our sanctification. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, there must be heresies among you that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Paul recognized this doctrine. He saw it as clear as day in the Corinthian church. God never tempts his people. God never tempts his people. But by decree, he does test them. He tries his people by letting them languish for a time under the apostate's hand. And these things are just that. They're a trying for us. It's to exercise our skill, to make us more watchful against these things, to mature us in the word of God. It stirs us to prayer in times of confusion. It solidifies our joy. It carves off our heart from the world. It sets our eyes on heaven. Solid food is for the mature, for those who've had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And at least in part, that comes through the means of testing. I think we can agree with the Hebrews writer, chapter 12, Verse 11, for the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. All is in God's hands, beloved, and all is for our good. Behind, as we sing so many times, behind this frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. This doctrine is for our good, although it may be mysterious. Notice also, this doctrine tells us that God registers everything. God registers everything. Dear sinner, everything, everything, everything is registered. Everything you have done has been written down. Who you are, what you have thought, what you have said, what you have done, every secret sin are all recorded in the annals of eternity. Would you have your sins erased? Would you have your sins erased? Would you have them removed from you as far as the east is from the west? Would you have the memory of them cast into the sea of forgetfulness, as Micah says? There's only one way. 
repentance and faith in Christ alone. Turn from your wickedness and live. He registers everything. But I think also our last observation on this small little portion of Jude 4 is that this doctrine of predestination is a mystery. It is a mystery. While men break his commandments, they fulfill his decree. Let's just stop right there and think on that for about 40 years. While men break his commandments... They fulfill his decree. One Puritan says this, His revealed will is what should be done. His secret will, what is done. We recognize this plainly in Scripture. Is Joseph's confession concerning the predestining plan of God, is his confession to his wicked brothers your own confession? God Meant, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. We see men breaking his commandments, but also fulfilling his decree. The free and wicked choices of men fulfilled the secret, eternal, and predestined plan of God. Is the prayer of the early church yours? Acts 4. Sovereign Lord... For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The very crucifixion of the Son of God was the breaking of his commandments. It was murder but it was also the fulfilling of his decree. The free and wicked choices of men fulfilled the secret, eternal, and predestined plan of God in the very crucifixion of the Son of God. Without this, beloved, there is no salvation. You reject this doctrine, you reject salvation. Mystery for the Christian is the very lifeblood of worship. This should not stir in us speculation and anger, but worship, reverent worship. This doctrine is a mystery, but can we bow before him and worship because of it? We ought. We ought. Well, let's move on to the last point here. Notice these apostates, their perverted personality. Now, with regard to the enemies of the church, we've seen my fancy alliteration. They're pernicious pronouns. These are certain men. We've seen their pervasive presence. They crept into the church, into pulpits, into hearts and minds, unnoticed. We've seen their predestined plight. They were long ago designated for this condemnation. And so we come now to this last point, their perverted personality. Under this point, I think we're going to see three things very clearly. We're going to see their character. We're going to see their conduct. And then we're going to see their creed. What about their character? These are, as Jude says, ungodly people. The word here means without worship, without the fear of God. 
Now, this is a a very important word in Jude's letter. He uses it five other times. And as one theologian notes, this is the single best term to describe the men who have secretly slipped in and are threatening the church. They are not confused, not sincere, but misled. They are ungodly men. It's a broad term. It encompasses all sorts of sins. Fundamentally, it refers to the transgression of God's law, the first table of his law. The first four, our duty to God. The next six, our duty to man. The apostate's life is constantly robbing God of his honor, his glory, and his worship. These men were not ungodly in the atheistic sense. They didn't say there is no God. They didn't deny his existence. It's not what it means here to be ungodly. They were ungodly in the practical sense. They were practically godless. They didn't disbelieve in God, but they were morally outraged at him. Their lifestyle lacked the fear of God. Now, it's really hard to tell what comes first. Bad theology leading to bad living or bad living leading to bad theology. I think we can say that kind of both interplay with one another. Suffice it to say that Jude calls them ungodly men. What about their conduct? What about their conduct? They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Now, some have observed reading Jude that Jude never really mentions their heresy. He never says what they're actually guilty of. But I don't think that could be any further from the truth. I think it's here, right, in plain English before us. These men were, to use a kind of a $5 theological phrase, these men were antinomians, antinomians, anti, against, namas, law. They were men who stood against the law. They would argue we're released from the law as a rule of life. They used grace to get away from rules. We're going to dig down in just a moment. Now, there have been a few flavors of antinomianism throughout church history. The first flavor, I think, is pretty blatant. We can recognize them. They are those prodigals who want to live like prodigals, quote-unquote, under grace. They preach sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And because of grace, they can continue in that lifestyle. I think those folks are fairly plain. They stand out like a sore thumb. This second flavor of an antinomian is those who kind of trivialize the law and make the cross all about love and speaking nothing about God's justice or atonement. They really rob the law of its power in preaching the gospel. Now, unless you're, you're imagining these people as some nefarious kind of shadowy, seethy person who lurks in a dark alleyway, there's a third and more subtle flavor of antinomianism today. Consider this. According to a Pew Research poll conducted in 2020, half of professing 
mainline Protestant Christians in the U.S. say casual sex between consenting adults outside the marriage relationship is sometimes or always acceptable. 67% of us say that. 67%. That beats Roman Catholics by 3%. We have a gospel of grace alone. Sola gratia. They don't. How can this be? How can those who sing amazing grace be so remiss about sin? That's because they're practical antinomians. Speaking to uh, other church leaders about how the church ought to deal with supposed gay Christians, modern-day antinomian Andy Stanley says this, quote, I know 1 Corinthians 6, and I know Leviticus, and I know Romans 1. It's so interesting to talk about all of this stuff. A gay man or woman who wants to worship their heavenly father who did not answer the cry of their heart when they were you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, God says no, and they still love God. I'm telling you, I'm still quoting him here, I'm telling you, gay Christians have more faith than I do. We have something to learn from a group of men and women who love Jesus that much and still want to worship with us. He calls 1 Corinthians 6, Leviticus and Romans 1, clobber passages when dealing with the sin of homosexuality. And he says, quote, we've got to figure this out. We've got to figure this out. One of the slides in this presentation to church leaders said this, we must uh, be focused on leading our churches to acknowledge there are gay people, not just straight people, with a sin problem. Now, these sort of things, and kind of raises the ante when you put it in writing, these sort of things are in black and white in a book that he wrote entitled Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World. He says that if the Old Testament is a problem when reaching unbelievers, cut it out. Let me say that again. He says that if the Old Testament is a problem with reaching unbelievers, cut it out. Quote, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. End quote. He says that the church has an, quote, incessant habit of reaching back into the old covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives, end quote. Now, so that he is crystal clear with everyone in writing, go by the book and read it. So that he is crystal clear, he states on page 209, quote, I cannot even believe I'm about to say this. The Ten Commandments have no authority over you. None. To be clear, he says, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments, end quote. This, beloved, and I'm not trying to beat on this man, this is textbook antinomianism. It's an antinomianism that leads to first downplaying and then justifying sin. It's an antinomianism that, as Jude says, leads to perverting the grace of God into sensuality. 
Because he's forced this unbiblical discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments, he's opened up his thinking and the thinking of all those who follow him to these sorts of statements on gay Christians. It's a form of antinomianism. We just don't see it right away because of the production value of his ministry. The production value of his ministry. We caricature apostates, false teachers, to be these dark alleyway dealers of poison. Yet here he is, largely unnoticed. Isn't that what our text says? They will creep in unnoticed. The the heresy of these men is the opposite of the Galatian heresy. The Galatian heresy was legalism. This is license. Galatians, as one preacher said, was tighten up. This is lighten up. Lighten up, man. Hypothetically speaking, if they were to answer Paul's question in Romans 6.1, shall we sin that grace may abound? Their answer would be yes. Thou shalt not obey the ten commandments. They alter the meaning of grace because they were never partakers of grace. They read grace through the lens of their own sinful lusts, through their own desires. They only have a notion of grace and no experience of it. A notion of grace and no experience of it. Now this fact, this line of argument, I think is one of the ways to support the idea that these certain men were truly apostates. Though never truly owning it, they borrow the argument of grace for their own sinful purposes. Who else manipulates the doctrine of grace but those who proclaim to be among the ranks of those of grace? Who, who manipulates that? Atheists don't do that. They don't argue on the basis of grace. Buddhists don't argue on the basis of grace. It's those within the ranks of the church who argue on the basis of grace to have a free pass for sin. This is why they are apostates. And notice Jude says it's the grace of our God. It's the grace of our God. Emphasizing that we who are truly born again own this grace. These men do not. They pervert the grace of our God. Grace that is a gift. And it's not to be perverted. But it is. And they pervert it into sensuality. This is probably one of the most common words in the vice lists of the New Testament. Most famously, it's found in Galatians 5 in opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. It denotes a lack of self-restraint and sexual indecency. Rather than the doctrine of God's grace making them hate sin, and that is a proper understanding of grace, these people drew secret encouragement to sin. Because of grace, they made a beeline to sensuality. 
They threw off restraint at the notion of forgiveness. Sounds logical, right? But this sort of thinking is insanity. It's insanity. One Puritan says this, Would any man be so stupid as to set his house on fire because he has a great river running by his door? From whence he may have water to quench it. Or would a man be so stupid to wound himself because there is an excellent bandage which has cured others? But this is what apostates do. This is the chief sign of their folly. It's grace working backward. Grace employed in the service of lust, not holiness. Grace understood for these men ultimately led to a God who was ignored. Grace understood led to a God who was ignored. This is the apostate's conduct. What of their creed? And we'll end here. Here we meet with probably two of the most offensive claims of Christianity, not only to the outsider but also to the apostate. Christ is both master and Lord. He is both master and Lord. Apostates deny Christ. They disdain him, repudiate him, disregard him. And the word is in the present tense. It implies this continuing action. It's the opposite of confessing him. They deny him. And this is the sort of denial that Jude means. Whoever acknowledges me before men, Jesus says, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. They deny his sole, absolute rule and supremacy. This is what the word master means. You know, earlier in the text in Jude 1, we discovered that word servant, doulos. It was a very um, eye-opening word for us, which means slave. This word master here means despotes in the Greek. It's the word for sovereign ruler. And it's one who has legal authority over a person in contrast to the slave who has no rights. And he is the only sovereign. Simeon prayed this way in the temple when he addressed God as despotes. When the church prayed in Acts 4, they addressed God as despotes, master, sovereign Lord. The saints who were slain in heaven, when they're crying out for justice in Revelation 6.10, address God as despotes, sovereign Lord. It's the fundamental identity of God as absolute ruler. But think about this. If these men were indeed slaves of Christ, as Jude and I think every Christian happily accepts himself to be, what slave would deny his master? They deny the only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These certain men were no slaves, and he was no master to them. They deny our only master primarily by their lives not by their lips. And they also deny him as the Lord. 
they deny him as being God in the flesh. He is no master to them, and he is no God to them. But, beloved, he is to us. And this is the reason we must contend for the faith. We must recognize these men, we must call them for what they are, and we must not let them creep in unnoticed. Well, much has been said in this little introduction. I pray that we've begun to think a little more seriously about our duty to contend, and then also maybe God has given us a little more of a clear picture about the secret enemies of the church. In our next time together, we'll call to remembrance the predictions and fulfillments regarding these apostates' future judgments. So may the Lord grant us understanding in these things and be ready uh, to put our minds to the text next time we meet together. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, Master, Lord of the church, King of all, ruler of all, whose decree cannot be thwarted, you have purposed in your wise and holy will to grant us to struggle against these things for our good, for your glory. And Lord, may you remind us when we face these things, when we find others affected by these things, by these people, that we would fight the good fight of faith. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Thank <laughs> you.